0: Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors, and what a wonderful morning it's been already. And it's great to be back with you. We are on holidays for three weeks, camping for three weeks. And for some of you, that does not sound like holiday, but we enjoy it. And uh, I'm just so grateful uh, for the church staff and what a wonderful job they've done, and for Reese, who for three weeks has led us in this series that we're doing on Uh, called Faithful and it's about God's faithfulness and I'm excited to like pick that up and continue with this. Uh, Speaking about faithfulness in our time and in our culture when it comes to faithfulness in relationships, in marriages, we don't see a lot of that these days but you know in our own community we can celebrate uh, this weekend. Kathy and Howard Pike, they're celebrating 40 years of marriage and I don't know if they're here this morning but... Yeah, that is something definitely worth celebrating, and so we're thankful for them and for the faithful display of um, you know, marriage that they are demonstrating to the rest of us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be starting at verse 11, and we're going to be reading one of Jesus' parables. Luke 15, starting verse 11. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son.' But the father said to his servants, "'Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and and sandals on his feet.' Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. "'Your brother has come,' he replied, "'and your father has killed the fattened calf "'because he has him back safe and sound.' "'And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. "'And so his father went out and pleaded with him, "'but he answered his father, "'Look, all these years that I have been slaving for you "'and never disobeyed your orders, "'yet you've never gave me even a young goat "'so I could celebrate with my friends.' Well, uh, I too have a story about sons that were lost. Well, one son. When they were little, we went to Coquitlam Center, and as we were walking through the mall, we came to this one part where all of a sudden you looked on the ground and projected onto the ground from the ceiling above was this video game. It was a soccer field, and little kids could play on this, and they could actually kick the virtual ball, and it would roll to their friend, and they could kick it back, and they could try to shoot on the net and score. It was a pretty, pretty neat little thing, right? So our kids were looking at it for a bit, and I grabbed one of my children's hands, and I said, okay, we've got to get going, let's keep going. So we walked along as a family, but then Andrew and I noticed one of our sons stayed behind. So we called out to him, son, we need to keep going. And he kept staying behind, and he was enamored with this, this video game. So I said, well, let's sneak behind this pillar here, and let's watch him for a bit, and let's see how long it takes him to realize that we're no longer there. And I was amazed at how long it took him till eventually he looked up and the expression on his face was, oh my, where did they all go? And before he could get too worried, I stepped out from behind the pillar and his countenance changed and he ran to me. and We hugged and, you know, lesson learned, right? No, not quite, but it was a good moment. But you see, he didn't realize his situation. He was so engrossed in the game. He had no idea that he was lost. He was blissfully content in his unawareness. And in today's passage, it's also about lost sons. Both of them who are unaware of their condition, their lostness. And the question that this story asks is, will they grasp their predicament? And will they allow themselves to be found? You see, God, he is faithful to seek the lost. Be found. Well, the context for this parable that Jesus tells, it's found at the very beginning of this chapter 15. And there it reads, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus, he's associating with these unseemly people and this garners the criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So it's in response to their criticism that Jesus tells three stories. Three stories about lost things and the great effort to find them. First a sheep, then a coin, And then sons. So first, he tells the story about lost sheep. It's about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and 99 stay with the the shepherd, but one wanders off and goes astray. And so as Jesus tells the story, this shepherd, he's faithful. He leaves the 99, he searches for the one, he finds it, and it says he joyfully carries this sheep back, and he calls all his friends and neighbors to come for a party. They're having a feast, lamb suvlaki, no, just kidding, right, to celebrate this, lamb, this lost sheep being found. And then Jesus says in verse 7, he says, more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and they haven't strayed away. Then Jesus goes on to tell his second story. It's about a woman who has ten silver coins, and she loses one of them. And so she turns the whole house upside down. She sweeps every single corner until she finds her lost coin. And then she too, with great joy, she calls her neighbors over and says, Hey, I found my lost silver coin. Let's have a party. And again, Jesus says, There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. So there's this pattern that we see repeated in these first two stories, right? Something is lost, it is sought, and then there is rejoicing in heaven upon it being found. Will we see this pattern repeated again here in this third story? Something lost, it is sought, it's found, and then great rejoicing, joy in heaven over just one who repents. So here we have our story about lost sons. And this is a story about lost sons. This is not a story about a prodigal son. You see, the word prodigal, it means to squander resources or to spend irresponsibly, which, yes, this child does, but to be a prodigal could also mean to be generous or lavish. But see, neither irresponsible spending or being lavish is this son's problem. You see, often we misuse this term, the prodigal son, or as for someone who has strayed away from the faith, and then they have come to his or her senses, and they come back to the faith. They're sorry for what they've done, but that is not what this story is about. Like the other two stories that Jesus tells, this parable is about lost things being found, not lost things finding their own way back. The sheep doesn't wander back towards the shepherd. The coin doesn't just reappear to this woman and this son. He does not consider himself lost and in need of finding. And this story isn't just about one child, but about two lost sons, but more importantly, about the father who faithfully seeks them. The question is, Will the lost accept being found? So first we have this youngest son. And he goes to his father, the story says, and he asks him for his share of the inheritance. Now, if this were to happen in our days, if one of my sons came up to me and said, Hey, dad, I want would like my half of the inheritance, well, the joke would be on him, right? No. But it still would, it still would be not a polite thing to do. It would be a little offensive. But in this time and, co- Jesus' time and culture, right, we, we don't really understand in our present day reading what this son is actually saying. His request is unthinkable. He's pretty much saying to his dad, I wish you would just hurry up and die so that I can get my share of the estate. And Jesus' audience they would have expected this son's disgraceful request to be met by a slap across the face and to be driven from the home. But here is our first sign that this father, he's not your typical Middle Eastern patriarch. Instead of doing what is expected, this father, instead, he agrees to this request and he divides his estate between both of the sons. Now, not only has this child disrespected the father, but his actions are such a spectacle that they would have humiliated the entire family, but they also would have brought shame upon the entire community in which they lived. And in order to deter deter people From behaving so selfishly, the Jewish community, they actually had a special ceremony for any person who would dare to show their face back in the village again after behaving so shamefully. And this ceremony was called the Ketzatzah. The Ketzatzah. So in this ceremony, they would have a jar that was full of burnt nuts and burnt corn, and they would take this... Uh, in front of this person who behaved so poorly, and they would smash it on the ground, they would break it open, and they would say, so-and-so is cut off from their people. And so that person would be banned, they would be shunned from the community. And there is no way of returning back into the community for being restored except for one. You had to pay back the entire inheritance. But as this story unfolds, we begin to see how impossible that is for this son, right? He squanders the money, the economy takes this turn for the worse as a famine hits the land and he is left penniless and starving. His situation is so dire that Jesus says he takes a job pig farming, which we know would have been detestable to the Jews because they viewed pigs as unclean. But even this does not pan out for him. He is unable to earn enough money to feed himself. His situation is so frightful that he's facing dying of hunger. So then he devises a plan. And we read his plan in verses 17 and 18. But often when we read these verses and we see what the son says, we often read something into it that's not there. We often see that the prodigal has like changed his mind, that he's now repentant. But if we do that, we're reading into the text. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, he came to his senses, but literally the words there mean he took an interest in himself. There's no remorse for what he did in these verses. There's no regret over breaking his relationship with his father And the second part of verse 17, they show us what he's thinking about. And it's not dear old dad. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving. He's thinking about food right? That's his motivation. He wants to fill his empty stomach, and he knows that the servants in dad's house, they have plenty of food. Now, some people might ask, but what about in verse 18, where he plans to confess? He has this line he's prepared to say, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Doesn't that show that he's remorseful? Well, remember who Jesus's audience is, Right? The the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these were very highly educated men in the scriptures and they very likely would have picked up on the the prodigal's words as a quote from Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. And they are actually the words that come out of Pharaoh's mouth when he's speaking to Moses. In that encounter, God, he had been sending plagues upon the, the nation of Egypt in order to get Pharaoh to let God's people, the Israelites, go. And so after one of these plagues, Pharaoh summons Moses into his presence and he confesses to him using the exact phrase that the prodigal used. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have sinned against God and you. But we also know from this encounter that Pharaoh isn't actually repenting. He's only saying this to Moses to, so that Moses will pray that the plagues will stop. And when Moses does that and the plagues stop, what well, we see Pharaoh just goes on continuing to enslave God's people. So here the son, he's, he's hoping his confession will have the same effect, that it will soften his father's heart so that he can enact his plan. His plan to get a job so he can eat and perhaps so he can start to earn enough money in order to pay back his squandered inheritance. To Restore his place himself. Remember, paying the inheritance back, this is the only way that he is able to regain his position in the family. And in his mind, he believes that his problems are an empty stomach and an empty bank account. And so without displaying any real shame or any real remorse, he enacts his plan, believing that with a little luck, he can save himself. But what he doesn't realize is that hunger and poverty, they're not the problem. The real issue is he's lost. The real problem is is his broken relationship with his father. That is the ultimate concern. This youngest child, he is utterly lost, but this father, he's all about faithfully seeking the lost. And so Jesus goes on to talk to us about who this father is and what he does is he shows the Pharisees and us all about God in his description of this father. The father in this story, he never acts like a typical patriarch in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, which is all about honor. The father, his behavior here is so improper, but propriety be darned, this father, he's got a plan of his own, right? First of all, he is constantly on the lookout for his son. He has never given up seeking the lost. English poet Francis Thompson, he described God as the hound of heaven. He doggedly pursues us. And this father, he has constantly been on the lookout for his son, and so he sees him from a long way off. And the next thing we see him do is we see the father run. Now, this was not proper etiquette for a Middle Eastern man, especially one who's so respectable as him, especially one who wears long robes. Do you know what you have to do in order to run in long robes? Yeah, that's, it, it doesn't look very good, right? It's humiliating. But this father, he endures the humiliation. Why? Why does he run? Well, remember that shunning ceremony I talked about at the beginning of the service, that if this young man were to show his face in the village again, the ketsatsa, they would broke, break that jar in, at his feet, and they would tell him that he's cut off from his people. This father knows how the village will receive his son. And so he plans to reach his child before the village reaches him, before his son can face that angry reception. And so this father, he runs out of compassion. He runs to reconcile with his estranged son. He runs because he is the one who faithfully seeks the lost. And before the son can even get a word out of his prepared speech, Jesus says that the father lavishes him with hugs and kisses. This father loves first. We read that in 1 John 4. Right? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. That we love because He first loved us. And it's this Father's love and faithfulness. It so overwhelms and so surprises His Son that now, only after, you know, now that He's encountered this, He can only get out the first part of His speech in true repentance. Only now does he realize how lost he's actually been and what his real predicament has been all along. He has rejected his father, and he has no idea how he can mend their relationship. And the truth is, he can't. But the father can. And he does because, well, he's faithful. And so rather than demanding a public apology or working out a repayment plan, you know, installments to pay me back, this father, he goes right into rejoicing mode, right into party planning, right? His son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Hallelujah, let's have a feast. And this is the message of the gospel, right? That we are lost, that we have all broken our relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we have gone our own way, and that there is nothing that you and I can do in order to earn our way back. There is no repaying God back. But He has made the way. He has sought us in our lostness. God has come down in Christ for His lost children through the cross. Jesus has made reconciliation for us. He has paid for our sins. We were dead. But in Christ, we can be made alive. Jesus and the Father, they are one. And in each of these stories that Jesus is telling, he is showing us what God is like and how he is faithful to seek the lost. And so Jesus is the shepherd who leaves the ninety-nine to go out and to find the wayward sheep. And Jesus is the woman who turns the whole house upside down in order to find that lost coin. And he's the father who looks for his lost son. Jesus faithfully seeks the lost. Will you accept being found? You see, the youngest son, he may not be able to fix this relationship himself, but he actually does something very significant. He plays an important role. First of all, he does recognize that he's lost. But more important than just recognizing that you're lost is accepting being found. You see, not everyone is willing to admit in this world that they're lost, And there are even fewer in this world who will admit that they cannot make it on their own, that they they cannot make it without God. They refuse to be found. And if you haven't caught it yet, there are a number of analogies in Jesus' parables, right? It's not just this father who is illustrative of God, who's illustrative of Jesus, the one who came to seek and save the lost. But the younger son, he represents those Tax collectors, those notorious sinners that Jesus liked to hang out and, and eat with. But there is still one other character in this parable. And that's the elder brother, the oldest son. And this is the shocking character of the story. And with his introduction, Jesus delivers a stinging indictment to these Pharisees and teachers of the law that he is telling this parable to This dutiful son, he comes in from the fields, right? Because he's always diligently fulfilling his responsibilities. He hears the music, and he asks the servant, what's going on? And upon hearing about his lost brother's return and reconciliation, rather than rejoicing, here he shows his true colors and the motivation for being such an obedient son all along. You see, he hasn't stayed home and lived faithfully out of love and respect for his father he has done this in order to stake his claim he operates by the model the motto you get what you work for and not what you wish for and he wants what he is entitled to he operates out of duty and not devotion He operates out of duty and not devotion. And though those two words are related, there is a vast difference between the two when it comes to relationships, right? Duty has this sense of obligation and burden, while devotion conveys loyalty and love. So for example, on most days, I will call home to my parents to check up up on them and to ask them how they're doing. And every once in a while, one of them will ask me, so why are you calling? And if I were to say, well, you raised me, so I owe you. This is so I can pay you back. Or, well, I'm hoping to build up more credit so I get a larger share of the inheritance than my two older brothers. I don't think my parents would be too pleased with either of those responses. I call them because I care. Like, I want to be a devoted son and for them to know that they are loved. Now, this doesn't always mean that it's always a joy or that I don't sometimes feel obligated to call. Sorry, mom and dad, I know you're watching, right? But doing your duty in order to be compensated is massively different than devotion out of loyalty. If the oldest son cared for his father, his obedience would have been this labor of love rather than this feeling like he's been slaving away, as he says in verse 29. If he truly loved the father, he would have also shared his father's heart. He would have cared about his father's concern. And his father's primary concern was his lost son. And so the eldest son would have also been on the lookout for his brother. He would have joined in the celebration upon his return. But the devastating reality is is that he has stayed at home this entire time But his relationship with his father is just as fractured as his younger brother's was. This older brother, he is just as lost. And he is furious because his brother has lost the share of the family estate and he has been reconciled without having to pay it back first. He hasn't fulfilled the requirements of the law like he, the older brother, has always been diligent to do. He's outraged. Because the prodigal has been forgiven without paying for his sins. And so this older son, just like his brother, he brings shame to the family when he refuses to go into the banquet. You see, if this were to happen in real life, if a father was holding this grand party, inviting the entire village, but his eldest son was steaming and refusing to come in and creating a scene... Typically, the patriarch of the family would go on with the celebration, ignore this public insult, and would deal with it later. But not this father. Remember, he is the one who faithfully seeks the lost. He can't ignore this situation. His eldest son is lost, and rather than saving face, he again endures public humiliation in order to seek out this lost child. Because God is faithful to seek the lost, but will he allow himself to be found? We're never told. The older son then serves as a warning to the sanctimonious Pharisees and teachers of the law, but also as a warning to many of us. You see, the oldest son's problem, it's not his disobedience. It's his pride in his good deeds and a lack of remorse. A lack of remorse over his broken relationship with the father, but also with his broken relationship with his brother. And the elder brother's problem, it's his self-righteousness. He uses his moral record to try to put God into his debt. In his book, The Prodigal God, Timothy Keller writes, The main barrier between the Pharisees and God, it's not their sins, but their damnable good works. You see, to be a Christian, we not only need to repent for the wrong things that we've done, but we must also repent of doing right things out of our own self righteousness. It's the sin of seeking to be our own Lord and Savior. We need to repent of the wrong things we've done, but also when we do the right things out of self-righteousness. The older brother, he may be law-abiding, but he's lost. And if you're lost, being good gets you no closer to being found. The answer to being lost, well, it's the father who faithfully seeks out his children. John 3.16, God loved the world that he sent his only son, right? God desires that no one would be lost, that none would go astray. Question is, will you allow yourself to be found? The younger son, he realizes the fault in his plans. He could not earn his way back. He could only choose to accept the father's forgiveness and love. He could accept being rescued in his lostness. Again, we're not told what the elder brother decides. Will he recognize how lost he is? Or will he continue in his stubbornness that not only separates him from his father and from his brother, but also that prevents him from going in and joining in the celebration? You know, I have to confess to you that I have been both of these sons, I have been the younger brother like that time where my son was lost in the mall because he became so enamored with something else that distracted him, I too have had other things capture my attention, other things that have captivated my heart. And often these are good things, right? Good things like family and hobbies and work, right? But they've, they've caused me to neglect my relationship with God. And time passes, and I don't even realize how lost I am. And then sometimes when, when I finally do, I feel this great sense of shame. And, and, and I tell myself this lie. Maybe you've told yourself this before, too. That before I can come to him, I need to get right first, you know? Like, I need to do some diligent Bible reading and some prayer, and, and then I can really come to God, right? Right? But where else can I go but to him for forgiveness? And then I've been the older brother too. I remember in the early days of my marriage, I was this really law-abiding Christian. I was dutiful in my devotion, in my Bible reading, my quiet times, in my behavior, but also in my expectations of others. And so I could be resentful, even condescending, of those who didn't take their duty as a Christian as seriously as I did. But thanks be to God that he helped me by giving me a prayerful wife and encouraging friends. He helped me to see the difference, remember, the massive difference between doing things out of duty or obligation rather than obeying out of love. You know the funny thing is even though like this for me it was a monumental shift the funny thing is my actions didn't change all that much right I kept doing my devotions I kept wanting to live a faithful christian life but my attitude and my disposition changed immensely right I became motivated by relationship It's the love of my God for me and my love for him that motivates me. And I don't think that I'm the only one who can identify with both of the sons in this story. I think this is our human condition, right? The pendulum swings from from one side to the other, right? From, From sinner to saint, from desire to duty, from prodigal to Pharisee. And even when we recognize our faults, there's this temptation within us to remain lost because of the shame of our sins or worse, to believe in our own self-righteousness, to not even recognize that we're lost, and to refuse to be found. And I pray that none of us would allow either pride or shame to get in our way from being found by the God who performs the ultimate search and rescue for us. I think that our need to be found by God, it's more than a one-time thing. You know, many of you can probably remember the, the day that you came to faith in Christ, right? The, the monumental change from, from being an unbeliever to now being a follower of Christ. For some of us, we, we kind of grew up in Christian homes, right? But I think for each one of us, we need to regularly come to him and to receive his grace and to recommit ourselves daily to walking in our relationship with him. And maybe God is calling you to respond to him in a significant way today. To saying yes to being found and to accepting our Father's embrace.